the drug companies, they do one kind or two kinds of analyses for their purpose to be able to call a certain substance an antidepressant, when in fact its most common effect is the reduction of your sexual desire. They don't call it a, a sex killer. They call it an antidepressant. Why is that? The antidepressant effect, so-called, is much, much less frequent than the effect of you having sexual dysfunction. But why is it called an antidepressant? I don't get it. That's the kind of information that should be out there. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling in today, we have Dr. David Cohen. For 20 plus years, Dr. Cohen has been doing research on psychoactive drugs and their desirable and undesirable effects. Recently, he was one of the main experts interviewed in the PBS documentary Medicating Normal, an in-depth look at the overuse and harmful impact of commonly prescribed psychiatric drugs. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gabe Howard. I'm very happy to be here. You know, this is not the first time that this podcast has delved into the idea that psychiatric medications could be overprescribed, and it's a sentiment that's gaining tractions, and studies are starting to back up these claims. But the criticism that we get every time we do any sort of topic like this is that we're pill-shaming. We're discouraging people who need to be medicated from seeking treatment. And as someone who lives with bipolar disorder, I, I want to disclose psychiatric medications absolutely saved my life. Without them, I, I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't be hosting this show. I, I might not even be alive. And, and I, I understand the pushback, but I think good information is good information and that people need to evaluate their own medical care. But I'm curious, Dr. Cohen, how do you respond to people who feel that your work is endangering people? Um, I listen to them. I want to hear exactly what they have to say about it. How do they feel it's endangering people? But of course, I disagree. Um, usually, I find that it's a prejudgment. They've already made their mind up without knowing the kind of work that I do. Let's jump in and focus on young people for a moment. Let's talk about today. What percentage of young people are currently being medicated with psychiatric drugs in, in the 2020s? Great question. So in the 2020s, we don't know very well because there's always a lag. Um, you know, by the time the information about a given year is available, it takes two, three, four years. So we never know quite the situation as it is now. So I would say in the late 2019s, early 2020s, very early, we have some idea. And we could say that about one in nine or 10 kids, roughly, broadly, varies among the age groups. One in nine or 10 children up to the age of 18 in the United States today is taking a prescribed psychiatric drug to change their behavior for whatever reason. Now, I understand in the 1980s, that number was less than 1%. And, and now it seems like that number is about 10% or, or 10 times higher. And it, and it seems to me, just sincerely, it seems to me that if in 1980, 1% of young people were diagnosed with cancer. And then in, we're going to go with 2019, the, the data that, that's available, that number rose 10 times or 
even five times, we'd want concrete answers as to why that is. Do we know why the numbers are increasing so dramatically? Um, we have very good ideas, although, again, people can disagree. But you, in your question now, you've actually answered a little bit. You went from drug prescriptions and you kind of slid into diagnoses. We went from using a drug to being diagnosed with a problem. And this is an important distinction that has to be made. But at, at first, it tells us that clearly drug use is related to diagnosis. And so one element of the answer is we are diagnosing much more than we used to. And no one can quite disagree with that. Not only are we diagnosing more often, which means that a professional is involved in making a diagnostic judgment much more often than would have been involved in the 1980s for the very same behavior. Why is that? Why are we diagnosing more often? Because we're medicalizing more. We're looking at the behavior and viewing it much more often today as a symptom of a disease or a disease itself or a defect or a disability rather than as a behavior that's approved or not approved, breaking rules, misconduct, misbehavior. And so that itself refers to a process we generally call medicalization, turning, say, badness into sickness, not wanting to blame them, a humanitarian urge. We don't want to blame someone for something they might be doing wrong or something they might be doing that just doesn't quite fit. So we say they're sick. And that's one first piece of the puzzle. We have dramatically increased the medicalization of not only deviant behaviors like suicide or alcoholism or, or, or violence, but even normal behaviors, common behaviors like sleeplessness or forgetfulness or inattention or even racism. All these things can get lumped into their diseases, their sicknesses, rather than there's something maybe a bit more complex that we have to deal with in different ways. Dr. Cohen, if I can play devil's advocate for a little bit, I, I think here is where I struggle. I showed the symptoms of bipolar disorder at a, at a fairly young age. I had mania, I had delusions, I, I I had suicidal depression. And my parents, they they did not take me to a doctor. They did not try to medicate me. They didn't do anything. And and it it almost ended my life. Now I know that bipolar disorder is is much more serious than than maybe some of the things we're talking about. But how can people tease that out? My parents feel very guilty for not getting me uh, any medical treatment at the age of 16. Whereas uh, now we're sort of talking about it in, in, well, maybe they shouldn't have, maybe they did the right thing. This all seems very, very difficult for parents to decide, well, I don't want to over-medicate my children, but of course, nobody wants to deny their children needed medical care either. Uh, right. Except you're, you're emphasizing medical care. You said I had this problem and, and my parents didn't get me medical care. So you see where some of the divergent views is what constitutes care? What, what response might have been very helpful to you, say, at 16 or 15 or 14, that might not have been medical care, but care nonetheless? There's a lot of things that are involved in caring for people besides giving drugs. 
And so that's, that's my first answer. Definitely you and, and many other people probably were in huge need of attention and care and listening and understanding what, what could be going on. What, how might we explain how you were acting? What did you think of it? What did you want? What did you need? And, and that's how people often care for these things. We didn't ignore uh, people making outlandish statements or delusions or, or thinking or having false beliefs. We haven't ignored these things before medical care came along. We've dealt with these things throughout history. And so confirms my first point I was trying to make is that we have medicalized and possibly yourself and your answer have conflated medical care, taking someone to a doctor, to taking someone to somebody else with a different school of thought and techniques and philosophy and method for dealing with extreme distress and extreme mental states. It's an incredibly interesting point that you raise that the majority of people think that treating mental health means getting medication. Oh my goodness, yes. I don't have data on it, but I, I, I think if you asked people how to help somebody with mental illness, I, I think the vast majority of them would say medication versus anything else, therapy, supports, stabilization, but, et cetera. But Gabe, then if I'm, you know, forgive me for jumping into this, but that you've nailed it right there. In fact, you are illustrating with this comment, yes, most people probably would say that, but this is a recent development. This is something, this, we're taking that for granted that medication is the number one form of care today if you have a mental health problem, but it was not always like this. That is, in fact, what I mean by medicalization, that people tend to think that this is the normal and natural way to begin helping. Having this view that medication is the, the fundamental, the essential, the paradigmatic way, as we say, of offering care or responding to distress. Whereas, in fact, just 30 years ago, it was just, you know, maybe the second or the third way. You, you had other ways to, to respond to distress. And that we have come so far is itself a sign of the problem, not so much that it's a cause of the problem. But but what is the cause of the problem? How did we get here? Or 1% of kids taking drugs to 10% of kids taking prescription drugs in just a few decades. That is huge. How did that happen? Well, that because we changed how we approach the problems, number one. But many other things happened. For example, the family has changed dramatically. The nature of the family, it's changed to accommodate, you know, a growing role for women as workers outside the home, as more autonomous. There's been fewer children in families. Families have been smaller. It's got more single parents as the mobility of parents increased. It's changed to lose grandparents who were people who, who knew children also and who were comfortable disciplinarians. So many things happened to the family over the last 40, 50 years. There are incredible changes that we can see looking back, but all that contributed to viewing and looking and dealing with children differently. And when you bring into that the slew of new diagnoses that appeared with DSM-3 in 1980, including the mother of them all, ADHD, or at the time, ADD, 
Well, then you begin to see and, and, and all the, the professionals, the learning disability and the psychological and the mental health professionals that, that were raring to go and diagnose everyone with these new diagnoses. So we had a whole industry and all of these put together, including the role of the pharmaceutical industry, because they promoted not just the pill, but the diagnoses. Diagnoses are much more important to the drug industry than to almost anyone else. They don't have to push the pill. They have to push the diagnoses. And once you accept that, that this is what my child has, my child has this problem rather than acts this way or makes these decisions or doesn't have this information. Once you say my child has this somewhere, then you quickly move to say, let's fix it. You know that children suffer from these diseases and we have very effective drugs that are going to take care of the problem and have no downside. That has been the push from the industry. Modern science, it's safe and approved. You'll be silly not to try them. So together, all of these changes over time lead us to the situation where nine in 10 people think, well, proper way to treat what we call mental health problems is just take someone to the doctor. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me, Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back talking to Dr. David Cohen from the PBS documentary, Medicating Normal. What are parents supposed to do, though? There's clearly something that's bothering them about the behavior of their child, the attitude of their child, or just they're concerned about their child. So they they do the right thing. They they go to a doctor. The doctor has to give them a diagnosis, and the diagnosis leads to treatment. The treatment is the medication. The, The parents are following all the rules. They're doing everything right. And and now we're in this situation where we've got this overprescription, and I, I think parents are they're they're really defensive about this because they're like, what did you want me to do? I paid attention to the mental health of my child, and I went to a doctor, and now you're saying that this other bad thing has happened. I I sort of feel like parents are getting a bad rap here. <laughs> that's what again. That's precisely the situation. Everyone, not just parents, everyone is doing what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to do in our culture. So this is a good segue to simply let's compare with some other countries. The the biggest chunk of comparable countries are European countries. Now, when it comes to medicating children, if there's one difference between the two, say between the United States and European countries, 
is that though you have a very similar rate of medicating adults, about one in five, one in four, for some drugs, one in three adults is on psychiatric drugs in Europe. For children, it's much, much less. It's sometimes 30 to 40 times uh, smaller. The rate of kids being medicated in Europe today overall with psychiatric drugs is about what it was here in the U.S. in the 1980s. That's where they draw the line. That's cultural. They're there doing what they're supposed to do because the society is organized a little differently. They're not as inclined to see what is happening to their kid as a defect in the child's brain. They're going to look at other things. And the professionals are also going to look at other things. For example, in France, you're not supposed to start medication before six. It's, it's simply not done. Very, very rare. Here, three, three years, three years of age, four years old is when kids are started on medications for behavior problems. These are scientific societies also. They have highly trained professionals. They use the same medical models, but they draw a line somewhere. The problem is not about, oh, what are parents supposed to do? The problem is, what are we all supposed to do? I, I have to say, when you were talking and you said six years old, I thought, that's ridiculous. You you can't you can't give psychiatric drugs to a six-year-old. And and then you said in America it it's three. I well, of course. I, in America, we, we have we have a rate already of about for three-year-olds, the rates of three-year-olds today, and it's about one percent of three-year-olds. That's you know, one in a hundred. We have examples of one-year-olds and two-year-olds being medicated with simultaneous with several psychiatric drugs. I mean, these are documented examples. And three-year-olds, we have population figures. We didn't used to look that young before, but we do now. We could document that's about 1%. That's 1%. And for six-year-olds, I'm, I'm afraid to begin to tell you, but it is several more percentages of that. And I could tell you that in some communities, eight to 12-year-olds, it's almost 12%. It's one in eight kids that you see in the schoolyard is taking a pharmaceutical grade amphetamine. I, I'm just really struggling sincerely how any doctor could prescribe that. Easily. By writing a prescription. They can do it because their colleagues do it. They can do it because their professional associations tell them this is a common neurobehavioral disorder of childhood that responds to treatment. And so that's it. It's where we've come. It's where we are today. Because it's all about raising and educating children. And everybody has an opinion on that. That's what this is about. This is how we raise and we educate and we discipline and we correct and we model and we teach children. Because now we, we can look back a little bit and look, okay, so what has this 50-year drug revolution actually brought us? What have all these treatments actually done? Now that we could look at that too. We're no longer just in the midst of it. Well, let's talk about that. Are we in a better place? Has this 50 years of data? That's a, that's a lot of data. That's, that's, that's a couple of generations. That's a lot of data. Well, I don't know any expert who says we are in a better place today. I really don't. Every expert I know, including Tom Insell, the former uh, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, made these pronouncements that at a population level, 
we were losing ground even compared to pre-drug, meaning even compared to the 50s. It, and, and, and for the most severe, what are considered the most severe disorders like schizophrenia. We did not have shortened episodes. We did not have fewer episodes. We did not have fewer patients. We did not have any measure of improvement of any aspect of the disorders were, were available. Suicide rates have dramatically increased. The, the, the incidence has increased. The prevalence, there's no, there's no satisfaction from any uh, a spectrum of the consumers. It's worse across the board. And more people are on drugs and more drugs. They're not on one drug. They're on three drugs. So I'm not sure exactly what, what it has brought us exactly to have come to the place where nine in 10 might think that what we need is take him to the doctor and get the medication. I'm not sure that it is justified by the data. Now, I will hasten to add that if I ask you, Gabe, or people that I meet, I hear stories at the individual level of people who have been helped tremendously. There's no denying that, just like I hear stories of people who have been harmed. But at the population level, looking at the statistics over time, it looks bleak. I sit in this very awkward place because, as I've said, psychiatric medications saved my life. I'm so thankful for them. But I, I do mm-hmm. have serious, serious questions uh, uh, about overprescription, uh, about their use, about when it's appropriate to take them and when it's not appropriate to take them. And, and I will say, as a mental health advocate, I'm not getting really solid answers on this. And one of the things that you said, it popped this in my head a little bit, because whenever I share that I take my medication and I get well, standing ovation, I'm a hero. People love me. It's, it's, it's a positive and powerful story. But whenever anybody stands up and says, hey, I was overprescribed medication, the side effects were horrible, it hurt me, people roll their eyes and, and tell them, well, you didn't do it right, you weren't med compliant, you didn't listen. It really seems like the PR, the information, the 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 discussion around the water cooler is psychiatric meds are good and we just push down any sort of data that shows that they have any negative whatsoever. I, I still have to ask though, what are people supposed to do with that? Well, Gabe, first of all, if I may say, you have just expressed now, I think better than anyone could have said it, exactly what the current cultural climate is. We praise um, certain narratives about the effect of drugs, and we literally, we literally demonize, we exclude, we put out of our consciousness other narratives about the same drugs. So we praise narratives, stories that say drugs help me, and we, we don't want to listen to stuff that says drugs hurt me. And that is, there's no better example of how this is totally a cultural moment. It's not, it's not a scientific moment. It's a cultural, social phenomenon. And that is what, when, when, when I look in my work at drugs themselves, Sometimes I don't see them as objects, but these as, as kind of symbols. They're like charged objects. 
They're like, like amulets, talismans. They're things on which we project. We, we put on them how we think about life and goodness and what's being moral and virtuous and what we should do, because that's what we learn. What's happened over the last 40 years and 50 years is drugs themselves have become this, they're no longer specialized tools of physicians. Really, they're not. They're just like lifestyle products. They've been turned into things that you know, you're supposed to know more about them way before you even get to the doctor's office. The choice, you've already made it. You're, you're only going to the doctor just to get access to it because it's been sold to you already. The drug has been advertised like, like we advertise cars and jeans and watches. And, and so that's what's happened over the last 30, 40 years is knowledge about the drugs has moved completely out of science. And that's different than it used to be. So I'm not saying it's good or bad, but that has helped all of the, the changes that we make decisions about drugs in relation to our values. And when people praise or, or, or condemn people for expressing certain views about drugs or other treatments, whether it be vaccines, you know, we, it's all about our values and what we know, what we believe as a society and what we've been taught. But aren't doctors supposed to be the last line of defense? I, I would just like to believe that if somebody walks in and says, hello, I want X, Y, Z, a doctor doesn't just write the prescription. Otherwise, they just might as well be over the counter. But, but Gabe, then you're not informed because, you know, the average uh, visit takes about 6.5 minutes with a doctor and they don't even know you. So how do you think they're going to come to their decision? That's the way it is. In fact, I mean, there's all kinds of studies that, that, that even measure this. So, <laughs> Gabe, uh, uh, wake up. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like that. That's why we have probably 65 or 70 million people in the U.S. on psychiatric drugs. And I'm not including the opiates. I'm not including cannabis. I'm not including alcohol. I'm not including coffee, which you might think I'm being glib here, but these are also powerful psychoactive drugs that change how you feel, how you think, how you act. That may not be prescribed today, but either were prescribed or will be prescribed tomorrow, including the psychedelics. As we go back and forth with all what's in fashion and what counts as a good drug and what counts as a bad drug, all that changes every decade. It's not as reassuring a space as you might think it is. All right, listeners, this is our to be continued moment. Please make sure to tune into part two of this episode to hear more of Dr. Cohen's insights, including how the difference between pharmaceuticals and illicit street drugs isn't so much scientific as it is cultural. And of course, what you and your family can do about all of this. All right, we'll see everybody in part two available right now. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.